So today we'll be chatting with Stephanie Drinka, an incredible woman who I adore dearly and highly respect. And our conversation today is going to dive deep into the importance of representation. Because when you think about what that truly means, it intersects so many different areas of our lives. And we cannot discuss moving forward or discuss innovation or justice or equality without having a diverse set of voices and spaces where they are traditionally muted. Stephanie will share with us her experiences growing up and navigating through her community as a Korean adoptee, as well as sharing with us how she's aligned her projects with causes she's passionate about. So without further ado, the lovely Stephanie Drinka. Welcome, Stephanie. And <laughs> yes. And thank you so much for really being the inaugural guest on Perspective. Um, and I think the conversation that we're having today about representation is extremely important, but I really want it to be less of a structured conversation um, and just more of kind of like an organic examination of some issues that we both kind of care about. So I just want to jump honestly right in. And the first thing that I really want to talk about is voice. Um, I feel like we can't talk about representation until we talk about voice. And so um, for you, I kind of wanted to know about the transformation, the evolution of your voice and kind of how it aligns with the things that you're passionate about. Okay, evolution of my voice. So I think for a long time I was trying to find what my voice was specifically. Um, I'm a Korean adoptee raised by white parents. I was raised in a very um, white middle class uh, community, I would say, in South Lake, Texas. And so I spent a lot of my time growing up being afraid to express my voice because I knew it was going to be different mm -hmm. than um, the people around me and all I wanted to do was fit in. Yeah. And so um, I, I was in theater, I was in choir, I was really drawn to the arts and I was, I think, using other people's words, using song lyrics, using scripts um, mm -hmm. to express myself. I was very uh, drawn to... Um, like sharing quotes and song lyrics and expressing my feelings through other people's words. Okay. And uh, and then privately, I was writing a lot. Uh, my mom was a librarian, so I would keep a journal, keep a diary, and I started uh, posting my thoughts on Live Journal and kind of those websites wow. back uh -huh. then, MySpace, all of those. And when I got to <laughs> When I got to college was when I really started to explore like my own writing and how I could use that as a tool as kind of therapy and the things that I was feeling, I could get it all out, um, put it on the computer screen, and uh, that's when I started to really develop my own voices. When I started kind of understanding justice and, and injustice in the world and realizing that I had things to say and contribute to some of those topics and uh, started using my voice. Uh, to speak out for people um, around then. And my voice has kind of just evolved. I always kind of saw myself as an introvert. I preferred writing to speaking. And so I ended up kind of falling into like a stereotypical Asian, kind of blending in with my surroundings and okay. not, not wanting to rock the boat when I came back to Dallas um, to the 
DFW area. Okay. Um, and really just kind of using my, I use my own platform to explore my voice and kind of write things like here and there, but mm-hmm. I got sucked into this world that where technology had become about influencer marketing and, and fashion blogging. Right. And so I lost my voice again because I was trying to fit in with, you know, with that community. Um, and I, and then I just got to a point where I was like, I can't stay quiet anymore. There's things happening in the world that are like almost unspeakable. Um, and I think with the election, um, was when I realized I'm not in the right industry. I'm not in the right place. I don't feel like I can safely express my thoughts, uh, to the people that I'm working with or, um, kind of in my direct circle Mm -hmm. and I realized I needed to kind of get out of uh I just needed to get in a better space and so I left the fashion blogging world and went to the nonprofit world wow so that was that was an interesting experience because I thought it was going to be so different than fashion blogging world (laughs) and uh when it came to voice what I learned was that people in the nonprofit world like to say the phrase, we're giving people a voice. We're giving young mm-hmm. people a voice. Mm-hmm. We're giving marginalized people a voice. And what does that mean? Right. When you are saying that you have the power right. to bestow upon someone right. else their voice. Right. And what does it say when you're speaking on behalf of communities that don't look like you, right. that you didn't come from, and you are prescribing things to them based on a completely different experience than they have, and it's not so different than the fashion blog world where the leadership and the people in power don't look like the people that are being affected by your decisions. Right. And uh, so... <laughs> Decided to uh, to leave that world as well, and just kind of work for myself and be able to take on projects and clients that I felt um, had values that aligned with mine. Right, and uh, also give myself the space to write for myself. And yeah. uh, I joined. I was accepted into a writing fellowship that has helped me really hone in on what matters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, what I can speak to um, in terms of my expertise. And it's kind of opened my eyes to how challenging it is to get your voice out there, which I always took for granted because I was in this world where, you know, people like amass followings on Instagram, like overnight. Yeah. have all this so-called influence. Right. But like when you start saying things that really matter, it's hard to get your voice out there Mm -hmm. and listen to. And so I think that's where I am right now. I've, I've, I've got what I want to say to the world. I I have somewhat of a platform for mm-hmm. it, but I just I'm trying to figure out how do we scale so that these voices get heard. Right. And you're, yeah, and you're not, and it's and it's not in that selfish kind of I'm giving you your yeah. voice, yeah. and yeah, and that's kind yeah. of the feeling that you were getting away from. So I uh, so that's a lot to digest, Stephanie. <laughs> No, it's so I just kind of want to backtrack a little bit. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit just because you mentioned the idea of fitting in, and I feel like I mean that sounds so high school when you hear it, you know, like fitting in. 
But I think it's never been more applicable to kind of what we're seeing going on with, you talked about influencer marketing and things like that. So what do you think that that looks like um, today? And then what kind of struggles do you think that kind of people on the outskirts have that are really trying to, you know, question the norm, so to speak? So when I think about fitting in and belonging, I kind of, it, I think back on when I learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, hmm, my, uh-huh. my persuasion class in communications, and the fact that love and belonging is something that all humans need and right. strive for. And a lot of my issues kind of stemmed from the fact that I I didn't look like my family, which when you think about like where you belong, I think family is kind of the default for everyone. Of course. And for me, it was, you know, looking at my family and feeling like I stuck out and feeling like little things like when we would go to a restaurant and the hostess would try to see, you know, my parents and my brother and just assumed that I was like part of a different group. Right. And right. like those little kind of things that add up and make you feel like you don't belong. Of course. Um, and then you look on TV and you look to the media if you're not getting it in your direct community. Yeah. And if you don't see that reflection on your TV screen, mm-hmm. um, in the magazines that you're flipping through, I would always look through like YM and all these, you know, 17 magazine and never right. see anyone that looked like me. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of took it personally, like, I'm not attractive or people don't want to see people who look like me. Like that's not, um, marketable or valued. Um, and then fast forward to, um, adulthood, not seeing people who look like me in political leadership, in leadership at corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and like not being able to picture myself, you know, in a boardroom or like sitting with a certain title because I don't see anybody that looks like me in that. And then (laughs) seeing on social media so much, I mean, we're surrounded by, we can't escape um, representation and the lack of it is really clearer than it has ever been because it's everywhere. It's on our phones, it's on our TVs, it's on the news, it's in our workplaces and like we can't escape and so that constant barrage of being like subtly or like unspokenly told that you don't belong yeah um and i think the more people on on the margins um the more that we try to fight for representation the people that have been so used to taking that for granted and Mm -hmm. not having not knowing what it feels like to Mm -hmm. not be represented all Mm -hmm. of a sudden feel that fear of the loss right and um and i think that's been interesting too is um kind of the dawn of social media is like it's harder for people to get away with certain things right oh Um, we're holding everyone accountable everyone's (laughs) accountable now and so you're seeing like the the defensiveness from um kind of the the dominant power Mm -hmm. um being more pronounced and more volatile than ever before. And so, oh, absolutely. like, I feel like the further we get to achieving our goals, uh, the more walls are put up yeah, in front of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it it's really about this idea that there really are people that speak 
and they're not being heard. And so it just kind of um, goes to show that while for some people, something that's normal is truly a privilege, you know, it truly is a privilege because there are some people that don't know what, what it feels like to do that for themselves or have never seen someone else that looks like them do it. So I think that that's so important. Um, and so I, I guess I want to talk to you about when you felt the most comfortable challenging um, people or powerful institutions. Like when do you think they're like, where was the, what was the catalyst I suppose for you? Um, I don't think I ever feel super comfortable, but I feel like when stakes are higher, I feel more responsible okay. for doing it. So right. I feel like um, I'm more inclined to fight through that discomfort when I know that there's really important things on the line if I don't speak up. Okay. Okay. And so talk to me about, so, because when we talk about representation, it can represent so many different things, right? Um, and so talk to me about how that aligns with some of the specific um, causes that you are passionate about. So what I've tried to do is I, I have a tendency to think really big and get really overwhelmed by kind of all of the problematic things that are happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's important Amen. for me to kind of, yeah, r- remind myself that I'm one person and right. what can I have the most impact on? What have my kind of experiences led me to do? And so my kind of direct fear of like my community of influence is adoptees and specifically Asian American adoptees. Um, and then also, um, the influencer space because I was there for, for so long, uh, and kind of that technology and where all of that meets. And so I tend to start kind of smaller, like what, what does the Korean American adoptee community need and what can I offer that? And then what from that can I scale? So I started um, a YouTube channel uh, several years ago uh, talking about my Korean adoptee experience and realized kind of the power of social media to bring communities together, to get ideas out. That was kind of what sparked my interest in blogging and online marketing. And so now that I've, um, I've had that kind of experience and, and that case study, mm-hmm. my next thing is how can I scale that and affect more communities and so for me it's photography it's taking pictures and making sure that people are being represented kind of physically um and then uh, amplifying people's voice and giving the skills that i have um to make it easier for people so if it's um helping you know women entrepreneurs create websites uh, for their business so that they can succeed um, if it's helping other bloggers optimize their site so search engines find them um, I recently started kind of like a multi-author uh, like online platform for um, op-eds opinion pieces personal pieces photography uh, so that people that don't have traditional publishing credentials right. can start to build a portfolio um, and so it's really just kind of using all of the tools at my disposal to affect the most people that I can. Okay. And so, um, again, I wanted to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about, so Korean Asian adoptee, that's such a specific mm-hmm. group of people, right? So 
naturally, I'm sure there are some misconceptions. There have been a wealth of learning opportunities and teaching opportunities. So talk to me about that. Uh, so I think uh, um, with adoptees, from the time that we were born, our story is told for us. So whether it's the social worker writing, you know, a case, uh, our adoption paperwork and talking about our story. When, when we are adopted, our adoptive family, you know, kind of tells the story of, you know, you, you know, you came into our family, we became a family, you were chosen, and stuff like that. And so um, you get used to having your story told for you. Right. Um, and as adoptees, we experience a lot of trauma and loss that we can't express because the story we're told is that we were lucky and we should be grateful right. for our circumstances. Right. Um, and so... It took me a long time to understand how that affected me growing up and a lot of the decisions that I made or things that I felt back then that I didn't know were kind of stemming from my adoption and the right. trauma around that, that now that I've, you know, become an adult and started using my platform to speak out about some of those, like, not so pretty things, right. I, I've received so much backlash uh, that I never expected from you know, other adoptive parents, social workers. Um, recently, a lot of uh, pro-life advocates have started talking about adoption instead of abortion. And mm. so they're saying that, you know, adopted kids were unwanted and unloved and all of these, mm. like, again, other people telling our story yeah, for us. Right. And yeah, so there's been a lot of teachable moments along the way. People asking, like, who are your real, like, have you met your real parents? Like, we don't say real right, parents. Right. You know, we don't say things like given up and abandoned and orphaned and, mm -hmm. and all of those things. Um, so it's been a, it's been a pretty eye-opening experience. Like once I actually found my voice and started speaking up about it, but then I realized a lot of the things that I feel as an adoptee, it's also because I'm Asian. It's also because I'm a woman, right. you know, there's everything is so connected and inter there's so much intersectionality. And so that's, you know, even though I, I, I started kind of speaking um, on adoptee issues. It's it's really easy to see how it connects to other movements. Absolutely. And, you know, the responsibility is there to keep speaking out because if we want people to help us and listen to our story, we have to be willing to do the same. Right. And I and I'll be completely honest with you. I feel like um, I know I'm, I'm probably not speaking for myself, but I know that. Adoption is one of those topics. I feel like if you don't know someone that you, you can have a personal connection to their story with, you don't fully understand what it means. And so even yeah. just you making that comment, like someone telling your story for you and the the trauma that does ensue from that um, is just really eye opening. And so um, I, I'm interested to see to to learn how that's um, kind of formed your relationships, how that's affected your relationships, and if we could use this opportunity to educate someone who wants to be an ally and wants to have a productive conversation with someone about adoption, like what would you recommend or kind of what would you advise? Just to be really careful about the language that you use when you talk to an adoptee, mm -hmm. so think about how words might 
have an impact on someone, like the like the term unwanted, right. um, or saying that someone's lucky, which a lot of people think is a positive thing, like, oh, you are so lucky, like, aren't you grateful? But what that can mean for someone that's adopted is, um, if you go against that narrative, uh, you could be hurting your adoptive family's feelings by right. by expressing any kind of sadness or grief. And, right. And, and we know from any community that if you internalize that um, that grief, mm-hmm. it comes out in really unhealthy ways. So relationships for me it was um, because I never had help to figure out like abandonment issues and attachment issues. Right. I, I had really like unhealthy romantic relationships. I would I found myself in like an emotionally abusive relationship with like a complete narcissist. But right. I stayed because I was so used to always like people pleasing and trying to, you know, trying to fix things and yeah. um and uh even, and it goes even with friendships. Like, I'm very, Absolutely. like, analytical about my friendships. And, like, am I doing enough? Or, like, I didn't get invited to this party. What did, did I say something? Like, I will mm-hmm. analyze conversations that I had in third grade and, like, lose sleep over things that I said, like, in middle school. Because right. I, like, spent so much time in my head. Absolutely. Um, oh, my and gosh. The biggest consequence is that adoptees have a lot of mental health issues because being separated from your birth mother is traumatic at any age. Right. Um, but the problem is we're not able to talk about it openly because we don't want to hurt our adoptive um, parents' feelings. Right. And um, unfortunately, I just shared this statistic on my Instagram Um there was research done where adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide than mm. non-adopted people. Wow. Um, and we unfortunately just lost a 11th grade Korean adoptee uh, two nights ago. And wow. there's been, I think that's the third, third or fourth in the past few months just in wow. the Korean American community. Oh so that's not even yeah, just like speaking for other yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like that's only the reported cases, and Absolutely. so I think there's a there's a big stigma around mental health for everyone, mm-hmm. but then the layer of expected gratitude um, and like having your story co opted and labels put on you, it just like adds a whole other dimension. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about the intersectionality of all these different issues, and it can be. So overwhelming, you know, like you mentioned, to try to tackle all the issues, not to mention, like you said, overanalyzing the other things in life that are going on in your head. But how do you deal with, you know, sometimes like pressure from other people like to cool off or, you know, dealing with getting like tired of trying to fight? Because, you know, speaking as a black woman, like sometimes it's just taxing um, of course, mentally, but even sometimes physically, you know, there are just so many aspects to carrying that weight or carrying that responsibility and feeling like you're obligated. So how um, do you and maybe some advice for other women um, that cross so many other categories? Like, how are you how do you deal with the pressure to cool off? 
Yeah, I don't know if I have the most healthy answer for this, <laughs> but I would say I'm forced to pull off when my body just shuts down. When yeah. it's like I've gone too far, I either get sick or I'm just like so exhausted that I can't get out of bed. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I just have to shut down and go away from the world for a couple of days. You know, sometimes I just go off the grid for mm -hmm. a weekend or two and I don't think it's always healthy to kind of shut people out, but sometimes, I don't know, I just, it's too much. Yeah. Um, and and I, yeah. a lot of people will say, like, I don't, I'll, I don't want to go watch the news or I, like, take a social media break, but I feel like if I don't know what's going on, I'm not going to be prepared to jump back in, so I... I I find myself still drawn back to Twitter, still yeah. drawn back into the headlines. Uh -huh. I just give myself a little break from responding to it. Like, I give right. myself some space to yeah. think about how I feel. Uh, again, not super healthy, that I just, like, keep going until I can't anymore. But yeah. I, I just have to come back to, like, my why and why I do what I do. And really, it's just because, like, it matters to someone. Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm not doing what I'm doing someone that needs to hear what I have to say or to see what I photograph or to um, feel like someone else understands what they're going through. Like, I just, ha I just always have that in the back of my mind. Like, somebody right. needs this. I needed this when I was growing up. And it just keep, it gives me the fuel I need to, to keep pushing. Right. So I kind of want to shift and talk about um, womanhood. Mm -hmm. um, because obviously that is um, something that representative of both of us, and I. So I've, I've, I'm subscribed to this newsletter by Elvis, and I don't know if you've heard of it before, but it is a um, for women by women uh, investment portfolio that provides financial information for women, and they're huge advocates of women being financially independent and showing them how to build their portfolios. And so I get this newsletter um, every week, and one came uh, in my inbox about a week or two ago and um, kind of gave some interesting facts and about women and kind of um, some of the things that we're facing. Obviously, none of them are surprising. Right. But um, they are, they're just very interesting. So I kind of want to go through some of them with you and kind of get yeah. your reaction. Um, and yeah, so the first one was that women CEOs get 2% of venture capital. And for anyone that doesn't know what venture capital is, it's, you know, money that startups need to be able to grow and scale their businesses. So for us, Stephanie, what does that mean? Like, what kind of issues are we not being able to solve or what issues could be solved if this was not a real statistic? If that wasn't a real statistic, I mean, <laughs> our, like, our society would be so much more innovative and productive if women were given the investment to pursue their, like, wild and exciting ideas and see it to fruition. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I think generationally we're missing out on a chance to inspire future uh leaders um girls that will eventually be in those roles mm -hmm. to pursue certain industries or certain mm -hmm. companies or certain like if you can't i always like that phrase like if you can't see it it's really hard to dream it yeah. i just feel like we're 
we're cutting ourselves off. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then in terms of just like financial power and stability, like, um, deci- like decision making and power goes even beyond like the companies there, and it's mm-hmm. like their it's their capital to make choices and like purchasing power and like mm-hmm. giving to philanthropy, like giving to charities mm-hmm. or leaving, you know, building wealth for right. your family and future generations like feeling financially stable enough to leave abusive relationships Mm -hmm. or unhealthy Mm -hmm. situations because you're stuck financially. Like there's so many, like so many like health, like healthcare, Mm -hmm. like being able to afford healthy food or absolutely. (laughs) I mean, mean, it's just, and it's like what that means having a woman leader, what that means for your women employees, Mm -hmm. you know, and what that means for the trajectory or the possibility of the trajectory of their careers. I think that that's so important. I was reading something the other day that was talking about how the net worth of women decreases the earlier they have children. And I just, that was just so sobering for me because thinking, I mean, it's something I've always dreamed about is becoming a mother but I also want to be a really badass businesswoman, you know? Mm-hmm. And so reading that, I started like, you know, I, and a friend of mine, we were actually having a conversation about, you know, friends and reality shows about like freezing your eggs and all these things that women have to consider. And it's yep. like, no, we don't want to choose, you know, but there are so many different decisions that we have to make as leaders and just having someone at the top of a company that has the power to say, well, you know what? I want to make sure my employees have access to this, you know, is so, so, so important. And it just, it means so much. Um, yeah, I had a conversation with a young woman. It was a group setting and we were talking politics, uh, and, uh, one of the young women said that she would, she didn't vote for Hillary, but that she would never vote for a woman to be president, even if it was her own political party. Wow. And, um, you know, we kind of kept proving, like, why, and her answer was that women are too emotional, herself included, and they couldn't be trusted to make such important decisions, and um, it, it broke my heart. Uh like a million times over to of hear course. that from uh from a young woman like close to my age mm-hmm. and um and I, and I just feel like that's she's probably not alone in that thinking oh, and yeah, people have made being emotional or be having feelings a bad thing mm-hmm. but imagine what the world would be like if someone in that particular role had empathy, uh-huh. treated people with kindness. Um, you know, maybe maybe where we are is, you know, we've we haven't let our emotions guide us and mm-hmm. our feelings and our heart guide us enough. And mm-hmm. you know, look look at what's happening in our country this week alone. I mean, it's it's unbearable to think about. I know, and you know, I was listening to a TED talk by the founder of. Uh, Chobani yogurt and he was talking about how you know we need to change the way that we do business you know you know for the last couple of decades we've been looking at spreadsheets and we rely on spreadsheets for us to make decisions and we're not looking at people because we see numbers and that's what I always tell people is it's not black and white 
You know, there there is no set formula for every single thing in this world because yeah. that's just life. Yeah. So to just and say that being assaulted by now, yeah, so many computers and algorithms and absolutely. Like, if that was the case, we'd be golden now. Yeah. So like we're doing it wrong, we're missing something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the first step. Yep. Women, minorities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just, that word alone is ridiculous because we're not minorities. minorities like, actually. At all. <laughs> <laughs> at all. So then, okay, so the next um, statistic. So, Stephanie, this is one um, that just really just blew my mind, actually. Um, so it was a from a survey by Lean In. And uh, it was on sexual harassment and professionalism. Okay. So, senior level men are now far more hesitant to spend time with junior women than junior men across a range of basic work activities. They are 12 times more likely to hesitate to have one-on-one meetings. They are 9 times more likely to hesitate to travel together for work. They are 6 times more likely to hesitate to have work dinners. Because they're afraid of the optics of what it looks like. Those poor white men. <laughs> they're the most victimized and oh my discriminated goodness. again. Aren't they? Yeah, sorry to my white male husband. <laughs> <laughs> he knows this. At least he's... I think, I think it's just another excuse for them to keep on doing what they were doing, but justify it and put the blame on women. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I thought about, I mean, 12 times more likely to hesitate to have one-on-one meetings. And think about how that hesitation is affecting the, the promotion of women. Because they don't have access to, I'm sure, a lot of their male superiors. Yeah. Just baffling. And, um, okay, so the last one is on government, okay? So, um, but this one I just thought I pulled from, it's from a New York Times article that I just thought was very interesting because we're in an era where, um, while while we still have so much work to do, we are in an era where, especially at the local government level, women are making strides and... Um, we still obviously have some work to do, but women are making strides. Um, and so the article mentioned that women govern differently than men do in some important ways. They tend to be more collaborative and bipartisan. They push for far more policies meant to support women, children, and social welfare. And when in, in executive positions, national security. But these bills are also more likely to die, largely because of gender bias, according to research. I mean, just when I when I sat back and thought about it, I'm, I thought collaborative, bipartisan, social welfare. I mean, these are all things that most people, I feel like, from a government perspective, see as a threat, you know, to the status quo. While I'm looking at these words and thinking unity opportunity equality it's just it's it's extremely disappointing i suppose you know to to have it drawn out for us that way yeah i mean it just shows the system that was put in place when our country was founded is working exactly as it was intended to right to keep certain people in power and uh 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm afraid, like, any small strides we make without addressing the fact that <laughs> everything was built to, to keep perpetuating this, like, mm-hmm. any small wins we have, yeah. it's just, I mean, look at, I mean, even reproductive rights right now is, like, we thought we were golden after Roe versus Wade, and yeah. here we are again, but we, we are fighting, like, certain topics instead of the fact yeah. that, like, it's coming from the very top and like the, the everything that has been baked into this country's like government and policies from day one. Mm-hmm. It's, and you know, I had a friend um, who actually told me uh, because I was just thinking about, like, we're literally fighting for our bodies. We are yes. fighting for our own bodies. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine, she said, you know what? If, men could get pregnant, abortions would be available at the gas station. Mm-hmm. And when she put it that way, I just, I thought to myself how true that really was because we can't even make it in certain spaces to have conversations about our bodies, but men have the power to put something in place that does in this just yeah. completely backwards. And that's, that's all it's about. It's, it's about power. It's not about them caring about the lives of anyone because mm-hmm. pro-life, I mean, women have, I mean, my life should matter now, mm-hmm. but they're basically saying there's some hierarchy of value where my life means less than an embryo. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it, it all comes down to power and it's not even just powerful women. There's, um, there's populations that will be drastically affected by the by the financial implications of have being forced to give birth and like raising children that they're not financially prepared yeah, for. And for again, it. it's just keeping that wealth gap and the ra- the racial wealth gap um, wider. Um, so it's there's so many levels. It's it you know there's so many white women that are that are anti choice and. Yeah. It benefits them to keep their families wealthy and mm-hmm. empowered to keep um, to keep forcing people that aren't equipped or don't want. Like honestly, that's I think that's been the hardest thing this week is that people are saying things like, "Would you rather have been aborted?" When I when I tell them I'm pro-choice because I'm adopted. Wow. And so it's that's a that's not a fair question to ask of anyone, course. but course. people are going to ask adoptees because they think that abortion and adoption are like opposite sides of the same coin. But I had to kind of stop and think of it. And I'm like, you know what? If my birth mother was going to have a better life um, and feel better and be able to move on um, with her decision, if she terminated her pregnancy with me, then I'm okay with that. Then I wasn't meant to be here. Um, right. And so... I think there's a lot of entitlement and just people, yeah, there's just a lot of placing value on certain lives and certain people that it just, the whole pro-life state, like that, that phrase is right. such a fallacy. I know. And I, and, and I think it just goes back um, to the, the idea of representation is not that, you know, I have my students listen to, because it's all going to make sense in a second, but every year I have my students listen to this podcast about abortion, and the episode is about a woman who's from a strict Catholic family, 
was always pro-life and then she got pregnant and then she talked about her experience with deciding whether or not she really felt like she was going to go through with something like that struggling with whether the fact she thought God really loved her because of how she felt and then she ends up going through and getting the abortion and even talked about the spiritual struggle that she still deals with after that and then she then it goes on to talk about a, another um, woman who was, you know, very uh, for abortion. Um, and she was going up to a clinic and she uh, was in the process of about about to abort her baby. And there was a woman standing outside who was protesting and she basically changed the woman's mind and she ended up having her son. And so I have my students listen to the talk because I want them to understand that someone being pro-choice doesn't mean that they want someone to die or they don't, you know. It just means they want someone to have the choice to do what they want yeah. with their body. And so I because think nobody that, else understands the circumstances of their life and right. what it means truly. To, to be pregnant at that time. Right, and no one can truly um, understand the weight that is on that parent and how that truly is going to affect the development of that child. And so just having the right to be able to make that decision just just ripples into so many other aspects of people's lives that we have no say in. And I think it goes back to that idea of just having that conversation about representation because it's not about me forcing my views on you. It's not me understanding why you feel the way that you feel and how we can come together to respect each other's opinions. And um, so that, that kind of leads me to what I want to talk about with you and your projects. Um, and because we, we kind of talked about so many different issues, but I want to talk about how you are using your work to, um, kind of propel those initiatives because I know you have your SD media company. Um, and then I also discovered, um, Aimless Roots, the company that you have with your husband. <laughs> that was one just for fun. <laughs> And then uh, Invisible Magazine. So I want to kind of talk to me about how all of those kind of flow into your sure. purpose. Um, okay, so I'll start with SD Media. So that was, I was really lazy and couldn't think of a clever name, so I just used my initials. <laughs> I was like, I need, to, I need to get my two weeks and have a company like formed by Monday. So I'm just going with that. Um, but that was to... Um, offer my services to people that are doing work that is really, really good, but not as, um, not as well known. They don't have the million dollar budgets of the huge nonprofits and foundations. Right. Um, but there's, there's good stories to be told. And also they're working in communities where stories and imagery are often exploited for the sake of um, funders feeling good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be able to offer storytelling services that um, put people first, and not that funders are people, but the people <laughs> most affected by the work first, um, and not be driven by what's going to make a founder uh, funder feel good or cry or, you right. know, that kind of concept. Um, Aimless Roots really just... 
um, a fun project with my husband who's a designer and kind of centered around travel. So I was raised by a family that loved to travel. My dad worked for American Airlines for his most of his career. Wow. Now works for Emirates Airlines. And the idea of being able to travel and see the world and kind of broadening your perspective um, in most years kind of ties back to my feeling of like never fully feeling like I belonged anywhere. And right. so I feel really natural traveling. Sometimes like my favorite like time to write or reflect is like, in an airplane, like yeah. hovering about, like just getting out of my head in that space. So that's just something fun for my husband. And then this little came um, kind of on a whim after one of the convenings I was having for my writing fellowship and realizing how difficult it was for the women in my fellowship, who many are CEOs and executive directors and experts in their field, uh, to be taken seriously by publications and editors. Um, wow. You know, women with 20 years experience in their field were having their op-eds rejected and um, being told they didn't have enough credentials. Mm -hmm. And it kind of was eye-opening for me. If they're having trouble getting published, the rest of us are screwed. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I was looking at, you know, some of the other places, some of the places that were rejecting them, and like, well, their website layout is terrible. Right. They're, like, not doing anything on social. I'm like, they're not even, like, they're not even including a bio or a link back to someone's website. So I was just, like, I, mm -hmm. my, my geek side, like, <laughs> took over, and I was like, you know what? If you want something done right, you're just got to do it yourself. Yep. So I like was in the middle of the workshop and I texted my husband and I was like, okay, I want this logo, this color, this font, go. And I, and I got home that night and just built the website. And so that that is really my passion project right now. It's um, I'm tired of, it's exhausting writing and I feel like I'm preaching to a choir so many times when I'm writing my pieces. I'm like, I just need to step back do what I do, which is like building things and like making um, sites for people mm -hmm. and helping helping people find them and then just opening up for whoever feels like they need their story heard. And I, I, everything that I do comes back to the idea that stories are what I think is going to save us. I think it's what builds our empathy and our humanity. And I think if we had more stories and less data, yeah. uh, we would be in a better place. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, all these big issues that I want to tackle that are all like intersected with each other, I feel like if I give the right people um, the space to share their stories and enlighten people and open people's eyes, like eventually it'll bubble up and start to affect some of those big issues. I think, you know, when it comes to abortion, if someone hears a story from someone who's been in that position or even someone that has experienced the racial wealth gap and has not had, you know, the benefits of um, generational wealth and like, you know, their grandparents like leaving them money and buying them mm -hmm. houses, mm -hmm. like maybe when they think about what it's like to live in poverty, they would understand what the cost of childcare and raising a child could do to an entire family. It yeah. could, for it a community. Could, so for a community, it can take, take a community down. And so I just feel like there's little things that people can learn along the way that might somehow affect their view of some of those bigger issues. Absolutely. And I love that. I love... That's what I tell people all the time is like there, there is no shortage 
of stories to be told. So I love telling people that I'm a professional storyteller because on any given day, I don't know necessarily know what that looks like, but there, there is truly no shortage of stories to be told. And I loved that about looking at Visible Magazine. Um, first, I super loved all the gear, but I loved looking at the editorial board and seeing the diverse group of writers and um, producers and I loved seeing the wealth of topics that were available. I felt like truly everyone can get on the site and find something that makes them feel visible. So I'm really excited to see the fruition of your work. I I know everything that you put your hands on is awesome. So (laughs) I... It's just like it's just funny, like cause I just feel like I I've been spending so much time building websites, but like you know, like I just start I, I stopped feeling anything yeah. like when I was designing them, and so this is the first time when I launched a site, I was like, oh my gosh, I did something, like, <laughs> you know, I've been recreating the same kind of fashion blog look yeah, for clients right. for so long right. that it just felt like I don't know, like a hat forced to happen. So this was really cool to like figure out how oh, do I yeah. showcase all these different voices and people how do I make sure that they've got some sort of portfolio of their right. own when you click on their author name that they can feel proud to share and that they can put on their resume and on their LinkedIn yeah. and I don't know it just like challenged me from a tech side and it just got me really <laughs> excited <laughs> well and I think because it comes with that purpose mm-hmm. you know it's some it's it's cool because it's for it's for you as well you know but the fact that it has that dual purpose of not yeah. just serving you, but serving others and serving the community for a bigger yeah. purpose, that makes it that much more special. It makes it that much easier to get geeked up about it. Yeah. And it's like the, I just love the possibility. Like it's, if there's something missing or if there's a voice that's missing, someone's going to be there to submit it. And right. it's going to be there when the next person needs to see it. And so I just like the idea of just kind of like, not having limitations on what it could be and what it could look like. It's just kind of there for whatever someone needs at the time. Wow. And, and that, so that actually kind of brings me to, um, kind of like my, my all in all question, the, um, cause you, you say limitation and thinking about your journey and kind of where you are now, what is, um, one piece of advice that you, want to give to someone else that you never received and how did it change your perspective on your life? Oh boy. But I never received. Um, I think what I wish that I had been told from career counselors, mentors, or like parents growing up would, would be to trust my gut I think um, I think my intuition has always been really strong, but I got my trajectory got sides sidetracked by people's expectations of what success looks like or the kind of stereotypical ways to achieve success or earn a living. And if I had trusted that inner me that kind of said, "I don't feel like my voice is being heard." Um, what can I do to fix that? I would have come to this kind of solution and conclusion a lot faster. That that's what needs uh, to be out Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so how can so anyone listening? How can anyone listening um, support or follow any of your projects um, and passions? Uh, I would love for anyone that has a story to tell to submit it on Visible and it's visiblemagazine.com and there's a submissions page. Wonderful. And I just spend some time reading. I have some really, really talented friends with like incredible, thought-provoking uh, writing on there. So just spend some time like kind of walking in someone else's shoes through their stories and, and enjoy uh, learning something new um and yeah just getting the word out about the importance of sharing stories and and building empathy and listening uh in a time where everyone wants to have that final word and the mic drop moment yeah. <laughs> uh, you know I, there's the movie wonder um there's a line that says when you know, given a choice between being right and being kind, choose kind. Mm. And so I think in this kind of climate, everyone wants to win an argument with their facts and with their stats and with their, you know, the, the strength of their opinion. And I think sometimes winning is actually just listening and uh, treating people how you wish you could be treated. Absolutely. And I can't think of a better way to end our conversation than to choose kindness. So thank you so much for talking with me today. And thank you so much for being the inaugural guest (laughs) on Perspective. And I look forward to many more, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to me ramble. Do make sure you check out Stephanie and all of her amazing work at stephaniedrinka.com and at stephaniedrinka on all social media platforms. And don't forget to check out Visible Magazine where I am also a contributor. So support diverse voices and authors and artistry because representation is really where it's at y'all. But also don't forget to share your perspective and check out other parts of the site and share what you guys love using the hashtag Rockin' with Raquel. And until next time, ciao.